Chapter 16 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Arnold and Carleton. Meanwhile, the success of Washington had not been the only encouraging event of the year 1776. Up on Lake Champlain, Benedict Arnold and his bold men had been defeated in the first engagement between a British and an American fleet. But his defeat, like that which so frequently occurred during the Revolution, had been of a character that really encouraged the struggling patriots. Perhaps the best test of a true man or nation, after all, is in the spirit with which apparent disaster is faced. It was a favorite scheme of the British, not only in the early years of the struggle, but afterward, as we shall learn in the course of this record, to split apart the United Colonies by invasion from Canada, which should secure the waters and defenses of Lake Champlain and Lake George, and by holding the Hudson not only open a waterway between New York and Montreal, but also present a barrier which neither part of the separated colonies could break through. After the failure of the American expedition against Quebec it was believed, and indeed learned beyond a doubt, that Carleton would assemble a large force, already increased as it was by reinforcements of vessels and men from England, and make his way up Lake Champlain, attack Crown Point and Ticonderoga, and then push on for Albany or New York. General Gates, who at the time was in command of the Northern Army, having superseded Schuyler in that office, although Washington well knew that Philip Schuyler was much the better man, in spite of the petty jealousies and rivalries of the colonies that prevented him from following his own better judgment, had called a council of his officers and decided that Arnold was the man to provide and command a fleet to harass, if it could not drive back, the oncoming force of Great Britain. With all his accustomed energy and enthusiasm, Arnold threw himself into the task. Men from the coast of Connecticut and Massachusetts came to his aid, and within a few weeks after the time when they began their work, Arnold's men had felled the great trees of the nearby forests, cut and fashioned the timbers, and by the middle of August, 1776, a small squadron had been made and rudely equipped. A sloop of twelve guns, a schooner with the same number, two schooners with eight guns each, and five gondolas, each with five guns, comprised the Navy, which Carleton, with a fleet composed of a number of very strong vessels, 20 gunboats, and more than 200 transports, of which 40 were boats loaded with provisions, was advancing to meet. It is claimed that 12,000 men were in Carleton's army at the time. Arnold had planned to go as far down the lake as Isle aux Tetes, near Rouse's Point, but finding out that the Tories and Indians were assembling near him, and hearing numerous reports of the size of Carleton's force, he fell back with his own fleet, which had meanwhile been somewhat strengthened, until, in the narrow little channel between Valcour Island and the New York shore, he found a place where he was somewhat protected, and there awaited the coming of his foe. It was early in the morning of Friday, October 11th, when the long-expected British force appeared, and the sight of it must have been one to stir the hearts of Benedict Arnold and his men. Greatly outnumbered, facing a fleet manned by experienced sailors, other men than Arnold might have tried to flee but personally talking to his followers, appearing at any moment among his men when he was needed, the doughty fighter waited, and at noon of that day the battle began, 
and within an hour every vessel was engaged in the fearful conflict. For nearly five hours the smoke of the battle rested over the waters. The American vessels suffered terribly. About sixty of their men had been killed or wounded. The rigging was torn with shot. Masts were broken into splinters. But the intrepid Arnold had never a thought of giving up, for that was not what he had been sent to do. With his own hands he aimed the guns, and his voice and shouts and example were the constant inspiration of his men. When darkness fell, victory had not yet been won by either side, and the two fleets were within speaking distance of each other when the men ceased their efforts. The night that followed was dark, and there was a strong wind from the north, and after consulting with his officers, Arnold decided to attempt to withdraw from the place he held, satisfied that if the battle was resumed in the morning, the outcome could not long be doubtful. Accordingly, about ten o'clock that evening, the little crippled fleet weighed anchor, and with Arnold's vessel bringing up the rear, crept slowly and safely away from the overconfident boats of the enemy, and were more than nine miles away when Carleton discovered that he had been fooled. Immediately the British gave chase, but the wind had shifted, and it was not until early morning of the 13th that the enemy was close enough to fire upon the retreating fleet. Arnold's vessel was still the rear guard, and soon this was receiving the terrible fire of three of Carleton's gunboats. One of the American fleet, the Washington, soon struck, and the men on board were made prisoners, among whom was the notorious Joe Bettys, who, after he was taken to Canada, entered the British service and became one of the most detested spies of all the war. He seemed to be filled with hatred for his former comrades and friends, and at last, after having been captured and pardoned, and then breaking his promise, he was justly hanged. Soon seven of the British fleet were united in an attack upon the Congress, Arnold's flagship, but though it was soon punctured with holes and was such a wreck that it could hardly be kept afloat, Arnold apparently did not know how to give up, but still fought on. By his command some of the other vessels were sent ashore and set on fire by the men after they had landed, but still the flags were flying on the Congress, and her cannon had not been silenced. When, however, the other men had safely gained the shore, Arnold at last joined them and marched so rapidly for Crown Point that the Indians, who had been sent ahead to form an ambush, let him pass before they knew he was gone, and he safely gained the fort whether one of his schooners, one galley, one sloop, and one gondola, all that now remained of his fleet, had already made their way in safety. The British had lost about forty men in the two fights, and the Americans about twice that number. But they had inflicted so much damage upon Carleton's fleet, and fought so stubbornly, that the British commander, though he at once took possession of Crown Point, which the Americans had speedily abandoned for Ticonderoga, the fort they particularly desired to hold, he did not know whether it was wise to follow up his victory or not. Carleton is to be given credit for the kindness with which he treated his prisoners, for he ordered the same care to be given to them that was bestowed upon his own wounded men. For a few days the men in Fort Ticonderoga were in great fear lest the enemy should move upon them, and there can be no doubt that the place would have fallen had the British leader acted promptly, but he explained to his superiors, who were very indignant at his failure to use and follow up the victory he had won, that the cold weather would soon be at hand, and if his fleet should be held in the ice, he knew not what would happen to him. Accordingly, after a brief delay, Carleton sailed away for Canada, and his great expedition had in reality accomplished nothing, 
except to destroy a few rude vessels that the Americans had hastily constructed of green timbers in the summer days. Without any doubt the credit of all this was due to Benedict Arnold. It was his ability, bravery, and example that had cheered his men and virtually held the enemy back. Even his own enemies, and they were many, for he was a man who seemed to have a strange facility for arousing opposition, acknowledged this. But in spite of all that he had done, when the new generals were appointed, Arnold was ignored by Congress. His bravery and ability certainly had entitled him to the promotion, and Washington himself was strongly in favor of it. But once more the petty rivalries and jealousies of the men from the different colonies prevailed, and it was declared that Connecticut already had too many officers, and now should have no more until some others had received their just recognition. Arnold was furiously angry at this slight, and it was only by the earnest personal solicitation of the great Washington himself that he did not leave the army then and there. All this injustice, for it was nothing less, although it affords no reason for the treachery of Arnold which followed in the year 1780, still provides something of an excuse. If he had been a really great and true man, he would have preferred to suffer wrong rather than do wrong. But all that belongs to another part of this history, and for his wonderfully brave work on Lake Champlain in October 1776, he is entitled to the thanks and admiration of all the lovers of America. End of chapter 16